also. Uh, I think I left my outline either on the back pew or the office. And I have the PowerPoint, and I know what I'm preaching, and so that <laughs> it'll be fine even if you can't find it. Um, is that Numbers? Thank you, John. Well, we're going to be in Numbers uh, 16 through 18. So again, just the nature of these lessons, um, as I've been, been stating every month, uh, there's going to be a lot of summarizing in these lessons to cover the chapters. And one of the hopes of this lesson is to show sections of numbers that, as you read it, you may not quite see as continuous stories that are interconnected, um, that you would be able to see how it all connects together and how the sections of law fit with the narrative to actually teach applications and reflections of the things we see happening with Israel. Uh, so keep in mind, remember, uh, they left Mount Sinai for the first time in chapter 10. And so the first nine chapters is God still giving some final preparations for Israel to begin their journey to Canaan. And then chapter 13 is when we see them get to the border of Canaan. They send 12 spies in. Those spies are intimidated by the size of the people and the fortifications of the cities. And so they bring a bad report. And in chapter 14, because of the bad report they gave, Moses had to intercede for the entire nation, stand in the gap, so that God would not destroy them and begin a new nation through him. And as a result of God's forgiveness, he gives them 40 more years in the wilderness um, that he would bear with them and work with them to kind of be a, a training ground for the next generation to build faith. So this is, again, what it looked like. This was a large congregation of millions of people wandering in military units. And so this wasn't just kind of a general mass of people, but rather kind of squares of people that were organized by tribe in the wilderness. And they would have been even moving by tribe as they moved along. And I wanted here to kind of give an outline of some symmetry of the chapters that we've been studying um, I think sometimes it helps me in my studies to see structure, to see symmetry, organization, and that helps me actually draw more out of the scripture when I see those things. So I think we have a parallel that goes farther than just these last two events, but is definitely, um, there's definitely a contrast, a symmetry. Chapter 13, the leaders present a problem. They're timid and cowardly because of the people in um, Canaan. They bring back a bad report, and that problem that starts with the leadership spreads to the whole congregation, and God threatens to dispossess the entire nation. That happens again here in chapter 16, just like it does in chapter 14. Because of intercession of Aaron and Moses, God does not destroy the nation. And in chapter 15, we saw some solutions that God gave, some more intimate individual solutions that were centered on reconnecting the people with the priests and the tabernacle and that's chapter 17 and 18. And that ultimately God's solutions involve the tabernacle, the priests, and reconnecting the priests and the people back together and understanding the value they need to be placing on the role that the priests have within the nation, their need for that role. But also I think in this instance, it's going to be the priests more understanding their need for the value of the Levites and the people toward them. So that, that's some symmetry we have here. It starts with the problem with the leadership, and then we see God dealing out punishment and judgment that um, causes intercession from Aaron and Moses. And then God gives some solutions and reflections that deal with reconnecting the people and the priests. So chapter 16, we're going to kind of just look through the story 
And once we get to the solutions, I think we're going to deal with more applications and reflections that relate to the solutions that God gives. So verses 1 through 18. I'm going to go ahead and reread this section that we read for the scripture reading. 16, 1 through 18. Now Kor, the son of Ishar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and on the son of Peleth, the sons of Reuben, took action. They rose up before Moses, together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown. They assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone far enough, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard this, he fell on his face, and he spoke to Korah and all his company, saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy, and will bring him near to himself, even the one whom he will choose he will bring near to himself. Do this. Take censers for yourselves, Korah, and all your company, and put fire in them, and lay incense upon them in the presence of the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the one who is holy. You have gone far enough, you sons of Levi. Then Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it not enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them? And that he has brought you near, Korah, and all your brothers, uh, the sons of Levi, or sons of Levi, with you. And are you seeking for the priesthood also? Therefore you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. But as for Aaron, who is he that you grumble against him? Then Moses sent a summon to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab. But they said, We will not come up. Is it not enough that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to have us die in the wilderness? But you would also lord it over us? Indeed, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor have you given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Would you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. Then Moses became very angry and said to the Lord, Do not regard their offering. I have not taken a single donkey from them, nor have I done harm to any of them. Moses said to Korah, You and all your company be present before the Lord tomorrow, both you and they along with Aaron. Each of you take his fire pan and put incense on it, and each of you bring his censer before the Lord, 250 fire pans. Also you and Aaron shall each bring his fire pan. So they each took his own censer and put fire on it and laid incense on it, and they stood at the doorway of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Well, so we have a situation that quickly escalates and starts with Korah. And you'll notice through the text that Korah seems to be referenced as the ringleader. So you look at verse 5, he spoke to Korah and all his company. So even though you have Dathan, Abiram, On, uh, Jude, verse 11, also references references this as the rebellion of Korah. So again, Korah seems to be the ringleader in all this. And mind you, in this, I imagine that there were a lot of conversations that had to happen leading up to this event for Korah not only to gain the company of these named men, but to gain 250 other leaders of the congregation who also seem to primarily be Levites. Um, If you look at verse 8, Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. So although I'm sure, you know, it says sons of Reuben for some of these men, um, not all of them were Levi, but the majority, it seems, were Levites. So they're accusing Moses of exalting himself above the assembly And what's interesting about their arguments in verse 3, it's very bold, it's very confident, 
And I think it is very persuasive. Uh, Moses was seemingly doing more as a leader than anybody else, right? And also verse 3, was all the congregation in a sense holy? I would say yes. Maybe not holy in the sense that a priest is holy, but in Exodus 19, God said, you are going to be a holy nation, right? So there is a sense that, yeah, everybody's holy, and yes, God is in their midst, right? So they're bringing some factual, truthful things to the table, but hidden within that truth is a slanderous accusation. Think about it. Did Moses choose to be a leader of Israel? I mean, God had to not only push Moses to be a leader, in a sense, God had to rebuke and even almost threaten Moses to get him to lead the people. So this wasn't something that Moses just chose for himself or was willing to do of himself. So again, you have this very slanderous accusation that really isn't dealing with the real issue, as is often the case. And throughout this, we're going to see lessons that we've been just repeating through numbers that we saw in Acts chapter 6, that we see God and we see Moses continuously being problem solvers. They don't dwell on the problem. They don't dwell on it in a way to escalate the tension, but they just get to the heart of the problem to resolve it. So I want you to notice Moses' response. What's the first thing he does in verse 4? He falls face down to the ground. He fell on his face. So Moses' response wasn't to puff up his chest, to get in an argument, to get in a battle of words. And I think Moses understands this is a terrifying situation that, again, tension can very easily escalate here with how he's going to handle this. And I think Moses is a man who remembers the past and understands that this is a delicate situation. We are very directly interacting with God here. And if you're going to come against God's leadership, Moses and Aaron, then we don't want God to have to step in, right? Which, fortunately, that's where it escalates to. So notice Moses' humility, but look at verses 5 through 7. Moses immediately puts forward a very practical, very reasonable solution. So he immediately says, tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his. So he lets God make the decision, right? I think what we see in Korah back in verse 3 is they're making an assumption that God's favor is with them. Whereas Moses is making no assumption. He says, look, I'm not just going to argue with you and say, isn't it obvious God's with me? Who was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights? Who's the one that had the stone tablets that they brought to you? Who's the one that's interceded for you? Who's the one leading the nation on the eastern side of the tabernacle? Who? No, he says, let's wait until tomorrow. And we're going to let God clearly demonstrate who is his. And so it equalizes everybody. It gives the authority to God. It takes opinion out of the situation. So again, we see reverence and we see humility in the solution that he's presenting. And again, the fact that he says tomorrow, I think gives opportunity for conviction and humility to hopefully set in in the people who have stood against him. And then in verse 6 through 11, Moses gets to the heart of the problem. Is it not enough in verse 9 that God has separated them as Levites to be exalted in the congregation, to be near to him, to serve him in a very special way? But the issue in verse 10 is, well, the priests seem to have this closer relationship with God, a greater honor in their role because they're the ones who get to handle the sacrifices, go inside of the tabernacle, touch and look at the holy objects. 
which the sons of Levi did not get to do. So really, I think Moses gets to the heart of the problem that this is a discontentment with the role that God had assigned to them. And by the way, can we ever be guilty of that? I think there's a lot of layers of this that we can be guilty of. Um, I think it extends beyond something that I think is a more obvious application with gender roles. Um, Can people become discontent with, well, I want to do this, and I seem to be held back by the Lord. That seems to be the greater honor, right? Instead of realizing the work that God has given to do that is extraordinarily unique and valuable, the work, for instance, that the Levites needed to do that was very valuable to do and assigned by God to do, right? But again, just like... um, how it so often happens with us, the Levites had the more serving role. They had the role that was more behind the scenes. They would be the less, uh, less visible, and they would not seem to be the more glorious ones, even just the appearance of their clothing. So again, Moses perceives, particularly verses 8 through 11, this is an issue of jealousy and in not being content with the roles that God has assigned. We'll see solutions to this, mainly in chapter 18. So Moses presents solutions, and I think that's what godly leadership does. Godly leadership perceives a problem, doesn't sink down in it, doesn't dwell on it, isn't looking to escalate the tension and have arguments with people, but is thinking, how can we solve this problem in a godly way and really get to the heart of what's going on here and solve that? Then you have Dathan and Abiram. God su- or Moses summons them, verses 12 through 14. Do they seem interested in seeking a solution? So they bring up this problem. They've escalated this incredible amount of tension that thousands of people are going to die because of this, right? And Moses says, we're going to solve this problem. Come and let's, let's take care of this. And they say, no. Divisive people aren't interested in godly solutions to congregational problems. And you look at the low blows in their statements. Literally, this is like one low blow after another, specifically to hurt Moses, Verse 13, you brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey. So to them now, Egypt, you took us out of our promised land, man. And he says, you're going to lord it over us? That's another low blow, number two. Third low blow in verse 14, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor have you given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Whose fault is that? Is that Moses' fault, a failure of his leadership? So they're, they're failing to take fundamental responsibility that they weren't in the promised land because of their lack of faith, right? Fourth low blow. Would you put out the eyes of these men? How does that make Moses seem? You know, I think this is kind of like demons in Jesus' day when they would see Jesus. Oh, have you come to destroy us? You know, what business do we have with each other? Like, are you going to hurt us? And so it's like, oh, are you going to punish us for bringing this up? And again, think about the low blow that is to Moses as he's been interceding for them as he's been standing in the gap, bearing up under incredible pressure for their sake, and they're going to accuse him of being domineering and harsh and unreasonable with them. And that can happen sometimes when sometimes in cultures of a local church, you can have maybe someone or just maybe a few people in a group who are taking sin in the group more seriously than others, And doing what God requires toward that and taking that seriously, if everybody's not on the same page, those people dealing with that may seem to be more harsh than others because of taking those things as seriously as God does. And we're going to see how seriously God took this here in just a minute. But again, Moses is interested in solutions. 
Dathan and Abiram are not interested in solutions. They just want to sink in the problem, blow up this division, and blow up the problem and just let it fester. So Moses reinforces the solution after he appeals to God. You know, don't regard their offering. I mean, these are clearly people that even the law would condemn and speak against. They're openly causing these problems. They're, they're working against God in the situation very aggressively. And Moses, the fact that he brings up before verse, before verse 19, the fact that he brings up the solution again shows how relentless he is in pursuing the solution. He is not going to let their attitude determine his zeal to reconcile this and resolve it. So he reinforces the solution. So we're going to summarize some of these sections and read, read just a little bit. But basically, God is going to judge Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And that's going to be verses 19 through 33, uh, 34. The 250 leaders who are with Korah, they're going to be consumed by fire. And that's going to be verses 35 through 40. And then the next day, the whole congregation is going to say, you're the ones causing the death of the Lord's people. And a plague is going to spread um, by God and kill 14,700 people at the end of all of this. So initially, we have the immediate judgment of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. As this is all happening, um, God tells them in verse 21, tells Moses and Aaron, separate yourselves from the congregation that I may consume them instantly. And that's very blunt. So you imagine God is furious with the situation. And not only is Korah, Dathan, and Abiram here going to perish, but it seems like the initial judgment is just let me obliterate the entire congregation. Let's be done with this. Verse 22, Moses intercedes and appeals to him to not destroy the entire congregation of Israel. 23 and 24, God tells the congregation, all right, separate from Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. So in verse 25, we'll read this section. Then Moses arose and went to Dathan and Abiram with the elders of Israel following him. And he spoke to the congregation saying, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing that belongs to them or you will be swept away in all their sin. So they got back from around the dwelling of Korah, Dathan and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the doorway of their tents along with their wives and their sons and their little ones. Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all of these deeds. For this is not my doing. If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that is theirs, and they descend alive into Sheol, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. As he finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split open, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their households, and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, or to Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. All Israel who were around them fled at their outcry, for they said, the earth may swallow us up. So I think, first thing here, God was going to destroy the entire congregation. So I want to put in your mind that there's mercy in this judgment, that a very select amount of people are being judged here. So it's less than what is deserved, God also gives people the ability to leave from their presence to escape the judgment. In chapter 26, verse 11, it says the sons of Korah did not die in the judgment. And Jason, when he gave an exhortation, I think it was a Wednesday evening talk on this section, 
He brought out the Psalms that are written by the sons of Korah, and it seems connected that they were the sons, eventually descendants, of the sons who escaped this judgment. So people could run. They didn't have to stay there. They could leave and depart. And again, 26.11 clearly says the sons of Korah did not die in this judgment. So I don't know if it was their moms, like just grabbing the kids and running, or if the kids themselves like hurried up and got away. But again, so not everybody related to them died, but their households, their tents, they were all consumed uh, by the earth. And another thing about this is I think we need to see this more as self-destructive. So God is simply giving them what reflects their sin. God is simply dealing out what reflects their sin. So it's not as if God is being harsh with the people. God is being fair with the nature of what they've done and what they were going to do. And so what we see in this is their rebellion was ultimately self-destructive. They thought they were going to come against Moses, but ultimately they're just destroying themselves in the rebellion. The next section, I'll summarize this. Um, God incinerates the 250 leaders. So fire comes out from the Lord. Imagine you've got these 250 men holding these bronze censers and fire just burns them all and you just see them drop dead. The censers fall on the ground. By the way, this would be a really fun story to tell your kids. (laughs) Because you imagine like just the scene of the earth opening up, people being swallowed and falling alive and then fire comes out from the Lord, the fire pans dropping. I mean, this is... This is quite the scene, right? So, Eva's dad, what she's told me, sometimes when she would get spanked, her dad would like wobble her around on his knees because the discipline wasn't just the spanking, but the experience. Like he wanted to like really traumatize them. Like their whole reality was being shaken as they were being spanked. And she has told me that really impacted her when her dad would do that, right? And I think that's almost a little bit like what God was doing here. Is I don't know if there was a big earthquake as the earth opened up, but I mean, this experience, if you were to witness this and experience the panic of the congregation and you see the earth open up and there they drop and then it doesn't just stay open, it slams shut and they're gone and it's over. And it's like, whoa, what do you do? And the fire pans are there on the ground. God tells Moses and Aaron, pick up the fire pans. You're going to take these censers. You're going to hammer them into a plating. And you're going to put it like armor on the altar as an extra sign that nobody is to come before the Lord to serve him except the priests, right? So we're going to have multiple signs here that um, are meant to be lasting remembrances of what happened here. 41 through 50, I'll I'll read this section. So notice this in 41, but on the next day. So they've had time to sleep on it. They've had time to kind of, okay, let's grasp the things that have happened. But on the next day, all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron saying, you are the ones who have caused the death of the Lord's people. So just pause there. What did Moses literally pause carefully to say. You know, he's like, okay, so that everybody will know this is not Moses judging the people. If God swallows them up and the earth opens up for them, that's God, not Moses, who is pronouncing this judgment. And the next day, imagine the whole congregation, so again, millions of people saying, it's you. You're the one who's causing the death of the Lord's people. Verse 42. It came about, however, when the congregation had assembled against Moses and Aaron, 
And here is the big mistake they make, that they turned toward the tent of meeting. And behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And again, like what we've seen before, what God is about to do is stop something catastrophic from happening. So again, we have a very self-destructive series of events with the people. So in verse 43, Then Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from among this congregation, that I may consume them instantly. Then they fell on their faces. Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer, and put in it fire from the altar, and lay incense on it. Then bring it quickly to the congregation, and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone forth from the Lord. The plague has begun. Then Aaron took it, as Moses had spoken and ran into the midst of the assembly. For behold, the plague had begun among the people. So he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. He took his stand between the dead and the living, so that the plague was checked. But those who died by the plague were 14,700, besides those who died on account of Korah. Then Aaron returned to Moses at the doorway of the tent of meeting, for the the plague had been checked. Well, this has been a very eventful couple of days. So the congregation assembles to seemingly raid the tent of meeting and God puts a stop to it. Uh, He causes a plague to spread and what that pushes is an amazing act of intercession urged by Moses, but done by Aaron. We're going to see Aaron more front and center here in the next couple chapters. Moses has been the one interceding thus far. Now Moses saying, no, you take the censer. This is the true role of the priest. The true role of the priest was not to start trouble in the congregation, to trigger guilt in the congregation, as these things, man, they just they spread like wildfire. wildfire. We're going to see in chapter 18, 17 and 18, the role of the priest was to stand in the gap, to help bring life to the dead, to help justify people who were already guilty, and help prevent God's wrath from being poured out upon the people by teaching and acting on God's mercy and his methods of connecting his mercy with the congregation. So this is just a total disaster, but within this, we see Aaron fulfilling the true role of a priest that I think is fulfilled in Jesus and that we are obligated to fulfill as well in our community. So Aaron takes his stand between the dead and the living and prevents this plague from spreading any farther. But 14,700 people were killed in the process of this judgment. So let's go on to the general solution. From here, things really pause. And first we have Aaron's rod budding as a general solution. Chapter 18 is going to be more specific solutions. We'll, We'll get more into that when we talk about that chapter. And again, I'm going to summarize 17 and 18 and just read small sections. But chapter 17, I want to read the first um, five verses here. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and get from them a rod for for each father's household, 12 rods, from all the leaders according to their father's household. You shall write each name on his rod and write Aaron's name on the rod of Levi, for there is one rod for the head of each of their father's households. You shall deposit them in the tent of meeting in front of the testimony where I meet with you. It will come about that the rod of the man whom I choose will sprout. Thus I will lessen upon myself the grumblings of the sons of Israel who are grumbling against you. So God calls for Israel's leaders to take 12 rods 
plus one. Uh, so New American Standard says rods, but really it's the idea of like a staff, like a large stick. They were to take these large staffs, these sticks, write the names of their father's households, and for the rod of Levi, they were to write Aaron's name to signify that this is the priesthood, right? So this is to be a sign that both in verse 5, but also in verse 10, this was to be something that would put an end to the grumblings of the people. It would make God's choice very clear because this would be a symbol of a miraculous event that God had done something that was seemingly to be perpetual, that this rod's blossoms would be preserved from generation to generation as a sign that Aaron is the chosen priesthood of God so that there would be no dispute among the people thinking that one person is exalting themselves over another person, but that God has made his clear choice and made it evident. And Aaron's rod sprouts, buds, blossoms, and does it overnight in verse 8. Notice this is on the next day. Moses goes into the tent of meeting, and he comes out, and here is Aaron's rod among them, has buds, blossoms, and ripe almonds in one, one evening. Something significant about almond trees, they are the first to blossom in spring. Um, so I think something we can get from this is this makes something evident about the nature of Aaron's priesthood, that it's, it's a life-giving work. And there's nothing different between Aaron and the other tribes. They were all wooden sticks, staves, rods. None of those had any capacity within themselves to bear ripe almonds overnight, none of them. And so it's not that Aaron's priesthood or Aaron and his sons are really any better than any of the tribes of Israel. It's simply that God has chosen them as a tool to bring life to what is dead. And we're going to see that again in chapter 18, that the role of Aaron's priesthood is the role of atonement, intercession. So it's a life-giving work to bring life to the dead. Something else worth noting, uh, Moses goes into a secret place and comes out with something that had come alive from being dead before. Um, this happens on the third day. If you go back to verse 41 of the previous chapter, so you have the one day where the earth opens up and you know all that drama with them descending alive and the fire consuming the 250. Uh, so the second day, the congregation suffered the plague. On the third day, the third day, the almonds blossom on the staff. And that marks the priesthood. And I want you to remember Jesus' words in John 10.10. 10. He came that we would have life and have it abundantly. Jesus' resurrection on the third day marks his people as a life-giving people. We looked at last year at the end of the year that we are called to be spiritual priests in service to God. And so Jesus' resurrection also permanently marks something, that life is found in a certain place through a certain person, and he uses a certain people as the tool for extending that life out, the work of atonement, the work of teaching and helping people understand that they can find mercy if they come to God on his terms, as the priest would teach the people to come to God on his terms. So again, this would be a, a general sign that would lessen the grumblings against God. But chapter 18, I think, is personal solutions. So I've mentioned in the last month's lesson 
In numbers, you'll have narrative and law. Narrative and law. And I think on a cursory reading, it can seem totally random. Like all of a sudden, whoop, we have a whole bunch of laws. And oh, well, I guess, okay, we're back to narrative now. And whoa, we're back to laws. And it can seem jarring. So what I want to urge you to consider is that the laws that are inserted are not random, but are instructions that are meant to further resolve the issue that had just happened. So chapter 13 and 14, they don't go into the promised land. God judges the people 40 years in the wilderness. And then he talks about sacrifices in chapter 15. And it's like, well, what's this about? God within that promises them, I am bringing you into the land. And how you connect to God's promises of the future is by connecting to him through the priests. So again, God is connecting the priests and the people together. I want to start by reading verses 1 through 7. And I want to put in your mind, really think about that principle here in the way that God is instructing the priests to handle their work, that he's commanding them to value, to support, to embrace, that they are dependent on the Levites and the people. And so they need to teach the people and work with the people, understanding how valuable the service of the Levites are. And they will need to teach the Levites how valuable they are. And then they will both need to work together to understand how dependent they are on the people of Israel. Verses 1 through 7. So the Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons and your father's household with you shall bear the guilt in connection with the sanctuary. And you and your sons with you shall bear the guilt in connection with your priesthood. But bring with you also your brothers, the tribe of Levi, the tribe of your father. So notice he first emphasizes these are your brothers, your family, and notice this, that they may be joined with you and serve you while you and your sons with you are before the tent of testimony. And they shall thus attend to your obligation and the obligation of all the tent, but they shall not come near to the furnishings of the sanctuary and the altar, or both they and you will die. They shall be joined with you and attend to the obligation of the tent of meeting for all the service of the tent, but an outsider may not come near you. So you shall attend to the obligations of the sanctuary and the obligations of the altar so that there will no longer be wrath on the sons of Israel. Behold, I myself have taken your fellow Levites from among the sons of Israel. And again, note this. They are a gift to you, dedicated to the Lord to perform the service for the tent of meeting. But you and your sons with you shall attend to your priesthood for everything concerning the altar and inside the veil, and you are to perform service. I am giving you the priesthood as a bestowed service, but the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. So I want to think about some principles that I think give us some applications to think about. The role of the priest was that they were to be responsible for the guilt of the people. When I was working at UPS, um, I would have generally about 10 employees who I was um, managing. And my bosses, if something went wrong in my work area with one of my employees, even if it was outside of me interacting with them and had nothing to do with me, who is responsible for that mistake? Me. Now, me knowing I'm responsible, if I'm to do my job as a manager properly, if I know that I am responsible for the errors of my work environment and my employees, what should that do to my attitude toward my work environment? Then I need to be very diligent to teach my employees, work with my employees, 
I need to really make sure I'm keeping an eye on everything that's going on because I'm responsible. What God is saying to the tribe, well, to Aaron and his sons particularly, is you are responsible for this. It's your responsibility that the congregation keeps falling into these tragedies and that there needs to be these catastrophic judgments. You are failing to do your work. It's you that's responsible. And this wouldn't just make them feel pressure, but I think it helps them understand you need to be working to help people be justified, not guilty. You need to be teaching people the attitude they need to have. You need to be gentle with people and help people see that God is working in mercy to draw them near, not just to judge and punish the nation. And I think you see weariness with God in verse 5. When he says, so that there will no longer be wrath on the sons of Israel. So imagine God saying, help me out here. Like, how long are we going to keep repeating this cycle? Do your work. Help the people understand the kind of people they need to be. Verse 2 through 6. The role of the priests was to help the Levites understand the value of their work. Notice the continuous emphasis. Verse 2, that they may be joined with you and serve you. Verse 4, that they shall be joined with you. Verse 6, they are a gift to you. And so he wasn't, God in reconciling the situation, wasn't permitting this attitude of, you're in competition, let's see who can do better. Or thinking that you're pitted against each other. He says, no, you are codependent. They need you, you need them. And again, to the priest first, it depends on you to help them see how valuable they are in their work. Do you guys see why that's so important for us as a local church? So I'm going to be bold in saying something. When women feel very discontent in their role that God has called them to, that is a failure of the men. That the men have failed to value the work of their wives or the women. And so the hidden things are not being recognized. They're not being encouraged. And again, what he's telling the priests is the Levites, more hidden work, if they don't value that, that's your fault because you need to be helping them understand how valuable that work is. Third principle in verse 7. This was a work of service, not a political position, not an honorary title. You know, the way that Korah saw the situation, you know, Moses, Aaron, you've exalted yourself. Like, no, this isn't, this isn't a political office. This isn't, we're not trying to honor ourselves above the assembly. We're just trying to serve. When we're becoming jealous discontent with what we're able to do, whatever that is. It's a sign that we're really not serving or being obedient to fundamental instruction, kind of like the Sermon on Bitterness. I want you to think about something in Romans chapter 12, verse 10. We're told to be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor. Now, if I'm keeping that in my mind, and striving to be devoted to others in brotherly love and to give preference to others in honor, does that cultivate pride, suspicion, discontentment? Or does it cultivate humility, contentment, love for others, seeing others in a more high position? I may still be confronted with my jealousy, but it will be in obedience to God's word so that it can be properly subdued, right? So Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, the 250 leaders, the issue, again, this bigger problem, 
was an individual problem. It started with an individual sin that these things that God is reinforcing were not being noticed, not being done, being neglected, because if they had been properly seeing their role and fulfilling it, there wouldn't have been so much room for this explosive discontentment. Think about this with with elders, deacons one day. Think about circumstances of churches that that do have elders. Um, Again, that everybody fulfilling their role is critical for maintaining humility and the kind of attitudes we have toward each other, toward submission to each other, submission one day to an eldership or the work of deacons. The only way that that can happen appropriately is if we are striving to be individually careful to obey God's instructions for service. Third thing that's a little farther in the text. He goes on in verse 8, and we'll read just a small section here in 8 through 12. He summarizes that Levi and Aaron are dependent on the people. That if they're not working with the people, they can't even live. Because their livelihood, even eating, depends on Israel caring about their work and coming to the tabernacle and later what would be the temple, verse 8. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, Now behold, I myself have given you charge of my offerings, even all the holy gifts of the sons of Israel. I have given them to you as a portion and to your sons as a perpetual allotment. This shall be yours from the most holy gifts reserved from the fire, every offering of theirs, even every grain offering and every sin offering and every guilt offering, which they shall render to me, shall be most holy for you and for your sons. As the most holy gifts, as the most holy gifts, you shall eat it. Every male shall eat it. It shall be holy to you. This, shall, this also is yours, the offering of their gift, even all the wave offering of the sons of Israel. I have given them to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual allotment. Every one of your household who is clean may eat of it. All the best of the, of the fresh oil and all the best of the fresh wine and of the grain, the first fruits of those which they give to the Lord, I give them to you. So again, these, these gifts, these offerings, this isn't just going to be a um, magical appearance, right? Why would the people of Israel be moted to give these things in this way? It would, because, it would be because of their reverent generosity. It would be because the priests are teaching, the Levites are serving, and that's inspiring Israel to bring what God calls for to the tabernacle, And so they will live off their work of service. Again, this is not an honorary title, not a political position the priests were inheriting or the Levites. This was a work of service. Just as the priests and Levites, God designed them to have different roles, different functions, but to be codependent. Ultimately, they are lower than Israel because they are dependent on what Israel can provide for them, right? And so again, how do we have a healthy environment in a local church, when we're encouraging each other to see the value of our individual roles, when we're realizing how codependent we are on one another and on the work that God equips us to be able to do, whatever that is, when men are striving to lead, when women are willing to follow, where women are willing to serve in whatever capacity they can and thrive in that, when men are willing to serve whatever capacity they can and follow in that, when people aren't becoming jealous of one another or thinking that this is a competition for who gets to be the most visible or most prominent or the most noticed, but when we're just trying to humble ourselves and keep the commandments that Jesus gave us to humble our hearts and unify us together in a spirit of love 
and holiness. And this section emphasizes those principles in just wondrously vivid ways. So that's where we'll end the lesson for this morning. If you're here this morning and you have not been brought into the kingdom of heaven, working with people is messy. Um, And we come to God horrendously broken and messed up. But just as God was being proactive and patient with Israel, Jesus shows us the love that the Father showers on us through his death and resurrection that assures us we will find grace with him when we come to him. He will take care of our every need and ultimately in eternal life, we will find eternal rest with him. If you're here and you have not joined um, Christ in the work of his kingdom, I would urge you to think on that and accept his offer today without letting another day go by. If there's anything else we can do for you, bring it forward while we stand and sing our invitation song.